When I was preparing this sermon uh, this week, uh, apropos of what I think uh, the first the epistle is about from First Thessalonians, uh, I remembered a story uh, about something that happened here about two years ago. I was leaving the office late one afternoon, and I came out of the office, and I walked up those steps where the parish hall is, and uh, coming up the steps uh, were two women, uh, an older woman and a younger woman, who looked to be being supported in some way by the older woman. She was a little unsteady on her pins or a little troubled or something. And so as I came up the stairs, she uh, looked at me and said, Oh, good! Just the one we want to see. So I said hello, and uh, the older woman said to the younger woman, Go ahead, ask him. So she said to me, When is the second coming? So, I resisted the temptation to say, I don't know. (laughs) And I explained to her how I think, uh, from the perspective of Anglican Christians, we understand this whole question of the the second coming. It is uh, important to know, of course, that there is a huge uh, body of, of Christian theology, particularly in the United States, who seems to be very focused on the whole question of the second coming and when it's going to happen, and that we're all supposed to be living on a daily basis, second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, and so on, waiting for this to happen, that it could happen at any moment. There are, as you know, people who are predicting it continuously. There was that guy in um, Oakland who said it was going to be, what, May 21st, and then revised it to August 21st. And as far as we know, most of us are all here. And um, so we, we just don't know what this might mean. I don't think Paul did either. And his epistle today from 1 Thessalonians is uh, to advise that congregation that if they're engaged in a wrangle or anxious or nervous or worried about this issue of the second coming that they need to uh, not worry about the times and the seasons, that God will come when God comes. So maybe it's important for us to speculate about how uh, the, the biblical authors thought about this issue and maybe some perspectives from our standpoint as Episcopalians with regard to what this might mean. My own view, and I think the view of a lot of the people that I looked up this week would say uh, that the issue of the second coming or some sort of uh, dramatic occurrence within human history uh, flows out of the lived experience of the communities that wrote about them. So let's do some history and chronology. First Thessalonians is the oldest piece of writing in the New Testament. In other words, it was written first by Paul anywhere between 48 and 55 AD. And he is expecting some 
dramatic event where the Savior is going to come again. I'm not so sure that he believes it in a literal way, but he knows that there's going to be events within history that point to God's presence and involvement in the lives of people and in uh, circumstances in the world. So what happened not long after uh, 1 Thessalonians was written? Well, in 62, or maybe 67 now is the preferred date, Paul was martyred on the road from Ostia to Rome, and so was Peter. Peter was martyred in Rome in 67. And there was an emperor, uh, the emperor of the Roman Empire then was a man named Nero, who fiddled while Rome burned. And he fingered the Christians for the fire that burnt the city. Pretty dramatic occurrences and changes within the Christian community. How do we make sense out of those things? In 70 AD, the Roman Empire came into Jerusalem and destroyed the city and burned down the temple. All of the Gospels that we read were written post-destruction of the temple. And so when they speak about apocalyptic and cataclysmic events in the life of their community, they have experienced them directly on the ground. The earliest Gospel, Mark, is written about 70 or 75 A.D., Matthew and Luke are written from uh, between 80 and 90 A.D., and John's Gospel was written between 95 and 100. So that's the, that's the chronology. They're living in a continuous situation of turmoil and unsettlement. They don't know how to look for God's will and purpose. And Paul's advice early on is to say, don't focus on these issues about the second coming. Focus on your role as a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love, that it is important for the stability and the self-understanding of the Christian community itself, but also the example that you set for the world to show the world that it is possible to be better than we are now. And that you can be an instrument of those processes. People who are focused on the second coming or when that's all going to happen are just not aware of their true vocation in the world. You need to know, I've said this to you many times, none of the readings today were from the book of Revelation. The people who first heard the book of Revelation read to them or read it themselves, understood everything that was in it. They knew what all those symbols meant. It was not some mystery that had to be unpacked by Hal Lindsey in 1972 in the great late, late great planet Earth. It did not require this. They knew what the numerology meant. They knew who the beast was. They knew where the location of all these churches were that were mentioned and their relationship with the Roman Empire and who these figures were. They knew what that meant. It didn't require some mysterious interpretation for us to now come clear about all of this business. So Paul, quite early on, is somewhat prescient, isn't he? He says, 
You need to be concerned about the internal circumstances of your community. You need to be alert to understand that God comes on God's time in subtle ways. We're just about to enter the season of Advent where the entire focus of the season is expectation. Where we're thinking about the coming of Christ, both the birth of the infant Jesus on Christmas, but also the coming of Christ into the hearts of all faithful people. I've always believed that Jesus comes again to each one of us over time. Some people don't care whether Jesus has ever come to them or not. Some people did, and now Jesus seems very far away from them. And they're not so sure it means that much to them. Or sometimes people, through their prayer, their participation in the liturgy, their relational life as they become more mature with regard to understanding their emotional, spiritual, and mental states, come to see the Savior now with them in a more intense and meaningful way than before. And so when the church speaks about the coming of Christ, we're talking about the continuous processes of God. The acknowledgement, as Father Thomas Keating says, we are not God, but our true self is God. And so as we mature, we come to see that more clearly and more deeply. And this is what Paul is speaking of. Not for us to wait for some kind of divine ethnic cleansing, where Jesus is going to come again and produce a horrific situation and carry us off to some cloud cuckoo land location where we now are in the presence of God. Matthew, in today's gospel, a famous story of the five talents, uh, is in some ways, in my view, culpable in his gospel because he uses a term that we hear a lot in the church's life and have since that gospel was written, and it's the kingdom of heaven. So it's easy to interpret the kingdom of heaven as somewhere else, because this clearly isn't heaven, as we come to interpret and understand that. It's notwithstanding that Matthew may not have meant that, That's how people over time have interpreted it, that you and I are going to labor in our lives so that we go to the kingdom of heaven. And what Matthew really means when he he reproduces the sayings of Jesus speaking about the kingdom of heaven is you and I have a responsibility to bring those values to the here and now in human history, that we are instruments of God's work in the world that we are cooperators with God's purposes and necessary to God's purposes. So we interpret now this parable in a number of ways. You can interpret the parable of the talents uh, in all kinds of ways, and preachers have done this for a long, long time. But remember, when we read the parables of Jesus, we need to interpret them at three levels. The first is, what was Jesus talking about when he spoke it? Who was his audience? What, did he, what point did he intend to drive home? What did Matthew mean? 
and the community out of which Matthew's gospel emerged mean when they reproduce this parable? And finally, what do we think about it? And how might we use it today? Is it of any use to us at all? So on the face of it, it's a, it's a story about three slaves. Uh, the new revised standard version, which we re- read in church now, uh, is, is more accurate in its translation of those, who those people are. I think the Revised Standard Version and certainly the King James Version translated them as servants. But doulos in the Greek text means slave. So as one com- person commented at the sermon discussion group, uh, we're going to speak here in a moment about the rewards of the more uh, talented uh, people, if you'll pardon the pun, in this story Uh, But they did a lot of good work for their master, but they're still slaves. And that may be a cautionary uh, word uh, in this day and age. Uh, I'm thinking, by the way, this is not a point I wanted to drive home, but you know, the villain of the piece in the parable is the uh, slave with one talent who buries it in the ground and then returns the talent to his master. Given the financial realities that have occurred in the United States since 2007, he may have been the most prudent manager of that resource. Right? Sort of like Bernard Baruch. When the depression hit, he was completely out of the stock market. Completely out. Somebody came to him and said, Mr. Baruch, how is it that you have been so successful? He said, I always sold too soon. So the guy with the one talent may not be, although he doesn't seem to be very smart in terms of telling his master that he knew he was a hard man and all that. I mean, mean, can you imagine what kind of a resume he'd write about himself to go to people... An interview for a good grief. The first two, all of the slaves were entrusted with a lot of money in the ancient Near East. Father Emerson, he reminded me, a talent uh, is about 75 pounds of gold. So think about it. What's the gold price now? About $2,000 an ounce. So it's a lot. And if you had five of them, uh, you'd be doing pretty well. And then doubling it would be even better. And the slave with the two talents did the same thing. They are enterprising in their way of operating. Here's what we need to do about the interpretation. Jesus very well may be using this parable not to speak about somebody's financial abilities. He may be addressing this parable to the religious leadership of his day who are resisting his message and pushing back. And here's the message. The message is that through my ministry, Jesus, I am announcing once again that in our own sacred literature, from the prophets of Israel, that God's plan for the world is to extend 
His gracious saving embrace to everyone, not just the people of the covenant. And that you and I, as faithful servants of the covenant, need to be generous with our resources in order to assist that process in coming into being. And furthermore, we need to understand that it is consistent with the witness of God within our common life as the people of the covenant from the beginning. Those who had a lot of talents and those who were at the top were resisting this because it may mean institutional changes which they would find difficult to bear, certainly in the Jerusalem religious leadership. By the time we get to, Jesus, to Matthew, Matthew is, as I've said over and over again in this cycle of Matthew's gospel, is a Christian Jewish rabbi who is a leader of a Christian synagogue that has now become 80% Gentile. And that means that 20% of the people in that congregation are pious and faithful Jews, many of whom believe that the 80% Gentiles who are now in giving some vitality and life to the congregation need to be required to keep the Jewish law. The males must be circumcised. You must keep the dietary laws and you must keep the Sabbath. In order to be a Christian, you must keep this law. And they are holding on to their tradition in the same way that the person with one talent held on to the talent for fear that they're going to lose something if they do this. And Matthew found what the Savior said resonated with the fact that somehow we need to have a more generous outlook. It also is, by the way, within the Matthean community, you're beginning to see how do we live now? What do we do as Christian people? Well, one of the things you need to do is practice fiscal responsibility. So that's also a, a subtext in this whole thing about prudent management of your resources. And that's why people preach about it. And sometimes they preach about the fact they use the, the wordplay talent as talents and abilities and you should use your talents and not hide your talents under a bushel and all that sort of thing, which is also a way that you can preach about this. But you and I may need to think about the use of our resources and abilities in terms of, uh, let's say, interpreting the, the, this parable in light of the kerfuffles in the Episcopal Church. There are many people who wish to hold on to an understanding of what the Episcopal Church is that's over. And so we need to have some idea of saying, you know what, it seems to be in the affirmative side of things that we believe it's important to err on the side of God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And that each one of us, in some way, on a daily basis, need to be instruments of that process to have it allow its free play to work on our emotional, spiritual, and mental states. And we all know that there are things that wish us to be the guy with the one talent. We're afraid to let go of those prejudices and preconceived notions.
You know, I have a terrible time personally uh, with, I, with certain aesthetic challenges that are hard for me to bear. I may have told you this story, I think I did at 9 o'clock, uh, about four, three or four years ago at the healing service one Wednesday morning. A young guy came into the healing service, I didn't know who he was, and he sat in the back and he had a hat on. Backwards. You know? So that, first of all, gets my goat. <laughs> and it's especially true because aesthetically, I think it looks so odd when you have the adjustable hat band on backwards, so there's this sort of thing like this and you're for it. It looks like the Dickens to me. So he's there with his hat on backwards. But it was clear, it was clear that he needed to be there and wanted to be there. So I can remember sitting there thinking to myself, he's got this hat on, what's he going on with his hat? So it comes time for the laying on of hands and the anointing. And he comes down the aisle and he kneels down to get his hands laid on and anointed with his hat on. So I can remember dipping my thumb in the oil stock and making the sign of the cross between the thing that was there like this with the hat right here. And I thought to myself, it serves me right. Right? It serves me right. Get over it. So sometimes a lot of this stuff can be pretty silly, but it, it looms large for people, you know, and we can't get beyond it. So somebody who is willing to say, I need to hold on to these practices, come what may, uh, it becomes difficult. So that's always the challenge, because there's some things you do need to hold on to. And Episcopalians believe there are three sources of authority in our common life together. The Bible, the tradition with a capital T, which certainly does involve a certain aesthetic outlook, and our human faith and reason. So figuring out how that all plays together to maximize the full play of the skills and abilities and uh, spiritual yearnings that all of us have is quite a challenge. So these readings are, in one sense, uh, about letting go and letting God. So that might be the lesson for this week, to let go and to let God. To remember that God absolutely needs you for the accomplishment of his purposes in the cosmos. You are necessary in big and small ways. And because that is so, you need to allow the full play of your talents and abilities to be brought to bear on that enterprise not by the learning of an abstruse religious vocabulary only, but by learning to be the best human being that you can be, knowing that God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives you. Give thanks for the opportunity to do that this week. Amen. <laughs>